On this Sunday morning, God's grace, God's mercy, God's peace to his people. Let me have a prayer with you. Heavenly Father, we bring stories this morning. It's a destination wedding I'm going to this afternoon in Michigan. Got about three hours to get there after the late service. Our destination this morning is meant to be this sanctuary here at Trinity. And as we bring our stories to you, stories that you're already well aware of, your desire is to bring your story to us. And that's why there are worship services all throughout this land and all throughout this world. Book of Hebrews says we gather together to hear the story of God, his power, his love, his wisdom. And as our stories come to you, Lord, Think of the people down in Branson, Missouri, in that great tragedy as our stories come to you, Lord. You know what our daily bread is to be, just the right amount of your peace, your presence, your tranquility, your salvation. Be with us, Lord. May we feel your presence in our Savior's name. Amen. I want to take you back to a boat, a boat that we were on Three weeks ago. And I want to take you back to a village, the village that we were in three weeks ago. These two stories are found in the same chapter of the Bible, Luke chapter 8. And if I were to ask you this morning, if I were to ask you this question, who do you think would have a greater faith in Jesus? People who had been with him for a year and a half, two years? And had seen his miracles of healing by the thousands. Or an individual who had never, never, never met him, shaken his hand, or spent a moment with him. If I were to ask you who would have the greater faith, what would you say? You would say, Pastor, stop asking us such an easy question. Certainly the people who had seen his miracles and been with him for a year and a half, two years, certainly they'd have a greater faith than someone who had never met him, never seen him, and never shaken his hand, and your answer would be wrong. Let me take you on the boat for a moment. Jesus said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. They got in a boat and set out, and as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. A storm came on the lake, so the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. This wasn't something manufactured in their mind. They didn't look at five-foot waves, and, and all of a sudden in their mind they were 30 feet tall. They were in great danger, writes Luke. The disciples went and woke him up, and they said, Master, we're going to drown. I want you to notice something. They didn't say to Jesus, Help us, there's a great storm. They didn't say to Jesus, save us. They didn't say to him, do something. They looked at the storm and they said, Jesus, we are going to drown and so are you. They were not asking for help. They were making a statement. We're about to die. They didn't say, do something. They just said, we're about to die. And Jesus got up and he rebuked, not the disciples, he rebuked the wind and the waves. And the disciples were amazed, and they said, Who is this man? He commands even the storms. And then Jesus, amazed, even more amazed than they were, 
He said to them, where is your faith? He was more amazed than they were. Why are on the boat? Because he spent the past week healing thousands of people. Why do you think he had crowds such as we read about in the gospel? Why do you think 5,000, 10,000 people were following him? Because of the miracles he did. They saw the miracles. They believed he's the son of God and they went after him. Even Nicodemus said, no one can do these great miracles unless they be from God. The disciples get to see it every single day. And yet when the storm comes, they're not even thinking about Jesus. The only reason they woke him up, I don't know. So he didn't drown in his sleep. We're going to die. And then later in that very same chapter of Luke, she had been bleeding for 12 years, no money, withered away to nothing. She comes in the marketplace, crushed by the crowds, touches his robe. She is healed. Jesus was amazed once again. He was amazed at her faith. And she said to the woman who had never, ever, ever, ever met him or spoken to him, he said to the woman, your faith has healed you. I'm amazed at your faith. Because yesterday my disciple didn't have any faith. And you who've never met me, you touched my robe and knew that I could heal you. Her friends had said, don't go in and to the marketplace. There are a thousand people there. You're 85 pounds. You barely can walk and stand. Someone's going to knock you over and you're going to get crushed and you're going to die. She doesn't listen to anybody. Goes straight to Jesus, touches his robe. Want to talk about faith? Part two. Said three weeks ago that life is, uh, that faith is life's conquering weapon. Uh, not your wisdom. That's not your conquering weapon. Not your wealth. That's not your conquering weapon. Not your power, your charisma, or your connections. We already know that without Jeremiah telling us in the ninth chapter, 23rd verse. We already know that. Because we've tried to use our wealth, our charisma, our power, our intellect. We've tried to use all these things in the course of a lifetime to be our weapon. And none of it has worked. Faith in God is your conquering weapon. Faith says to sin, you're finished. And sin looks you in the eye and sin laughs at you and said, you're a fool. I come against you every single day, and I defeat you every single day. And you look sin in the eye, faith looks in the eye and says, you come against me every single day. But often when you come, God makes a way of escape so that I can bear your temptation. You do not win every time because of God within me. Sin says I win often enough. And then you say to sin, your faith says to sin, if I fall, the one you tried to stop in the desert before his ministry ever began, and the one you tried to stop in the Garden of Gethsemane before he climbed that cross, his blood cleanses me. 
And his blood not only cleanses me, but sin is trampled under God's feet. You're cast into the depths of the sea. It is as if you never were. And then you got one more shot at sin and faith says to sin, not only am I forgiven, but God lifts me up, fills me with his spirit and I do his kingdom's work. He doesn't put me on probation for a month. He says, get back at it and I do. Faith is life's conquering weapon. It says to death, Seven funerals in 16, 17 days, another one yesterday morning. Faith says to death, you're defeated. Death says, I don't think so. You got loved ones that are dead and gone. You say to death, my loved ones are not dead and gone. My loved ones are safe in heaven. And death, when I woke up this morning, is already one day closer to seeing them again. Because death, when you cause the heart to stop, God takes those fallen asleep in him and he lifts them up to heaven. Death is swallowed up in Christ's victory. And then faith says to the final enemy, the power of the devil, faith says, be gone. And the power of the devil mocks faith and says, God's people come and sit in these pews all over this world on a Sunday morning and they bring fear with them into the pew and they bring worry with them into the pew and they bring shame and guilt and hatred and anger into the pews. They enter God's house with my stuff in them. And faith says to fear and worry and shame and guilt, be gone. 7,000 times God has promised that he's with us. Fear gone, worry gone, shame gone, guilt gone. If your focus is on God and not on the circumstance, you will defeat the power of the devil every single time. But if you focus on the storm like the disciples did, it doesn't go so well. There is one great sin of a believer, the most common sin of a believer. The most common sin of us sitting here is a sin of unfaith, a lack of faith. The believer has faith in God, but they have a whole lot of unfaith. I take you to the Israelites in the Old Testament. The tenth plague finally did Pharaoh in for about 48 hours. When the firstborn in his family and the families of the Egyptians, whoever didn't have blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorpost, when all of that death came... Pharaoh didn't wait for Moses to come to him. He went to Moses and said, get out of here. Your God is cursing us. Get out of here. Leave. Take all your people. 48 hours later, he said, I made a mistake. Let's go after them. They'll be heading to the Red Sea. There'll be dead meat sitting out there. Let's go after them. 
And I can imagine Pharaoh and his army sitting there looking at the Israelites saying, let's take our time, let's torture them a little bit. I can see Pharaoh saying to his generals, I want you to kill a third of them. I want you to torture a third of them. And I want a third of them brought back so we can boost up our economy through the use of them as our slaves. Waters of the Red Sea open, do they not? 1.2 million Israelites go through that sandy path looking at the walls of water that they're walking between. And you say, what marvelous faith they had. And I say, they had no faith at all. They had no choice. When you have no choice, it's not faith. It's called no choice. We stay here, we die, we walk through this path, we live. No choice. What a matter of faith. They walk through the waters when the very last one comes to the other side. Here comes the Egyptians, water crashes down, they die. There are very few songs in the Bible. But there is a song in Exodus 15, after they are delivered. And that song goes on for 21 verses. And it says, you are a great God, we shall never forget what you did. We shall never lose faith in you. Three days later, they don't have any food. They're cursing God. Five days later, they don't have any protein. They're cursing God. Six days later, they have no water. They're cursing God. They have forgotten uh, his powers, presence, his abilities. Here comes the manna, here comes the quail, here comes the water from the rock. Two years, one month later, they are standing there and God says, Go into the promised land, it is time. And the Israelites say, God, we don't really trust you. You tell us to go into the promised land. We're going to scout this thing out first. Going to send 12 spies into the lands. When they come back, if seven say yes and six say no, we'll go. If seven say no and six say yes, when they come back, there are ten that say, the descendants of Goliath are in the lands. They're eight, nine feet tall. They're warriors. We're shepherds. We will be destroyed. Two of them remembered the opening of the waters of the Red Sea. Two of them said, The God who got us through the waters is the God who will give us victory in the lands. People out of Old Assembly meeting, and at the meeting they said, We shall not go. This time they had a choice. Two years earlier they had no choice. This time they had a choice. And they choose to believe that God could not help them. Into the wilderness they go for 38 more years. The sin of unfaith. There are millions and millions and millions of Christians who are kept out of their own promised land because of unfaith. Young man four years ago comes, says to me, I prayed to God for the last three years that he would get me into Purdue University. 
I want to study engineering. I'm praying to God he gets me in. Pastor, will you join me in my prayers that God brings me to that place? Purdue University accepted him. He showed me the letter. They looked at his ACT scores and they looked at other things and they said, we'd be proud to have you here. It was a week before school started. come back into the office. He said to me, I'm not going. I said, what? He said, I'm not going. I'm not smart enough for the program. I will fail. I said, then why do you think you'll fail? He said, I know myself. I know I will fail if I go there. I'm going to a lesser school. I'm going to study engineering, but I'm not going to put the pressure on myself of trying to meet the excellence that is in that program. And I shook my head and ended up saying, you know, God will put you where he wants to put you. He had prayed that God would open that door. And God opened that door. And he stood there in the entrance of that door. And he said, I know God opened the door, but I'm not going in. How many people are kept out of their own promised lands? Schools, relationships, job interviews. How many are kept out of their own promised lands? Because of unfaith. They doubt God's ability or they doubt his willingness to help or they doubt both. There was a young man, Concordia St. Paul, Minnesota. There was a girl he had a crush on. This young man prayed to God for many, many weeks. Give me the courage to ask her out. And if I ask her out, give her the courage to say yes. Both things happened. He asked her out. She said yes. They go out on their first date. Brings her back to the dorm, walks her to the dorm, leaves, goes to his own dorm room. His roommate said, how did it go? How did it go with Vicky? Did she have a good time? He said, well, I had a good time, but I don't think she had a good time. She hardly said anything. She was really, really quiet. And the roommate said, are you going to ask her out again? And, and the guy said, no, I'm not going to ask her out again. Because I don't want to embarrass myself when she says no. And I don't want to embarrass her by her trying to think I don't want to hurt his feelings, but I really don't want to go out with him again. That summer, that young man's father took a call from Minnesota down to Illinois, so he couldn't go to Concordia St. Paul, Minnesota anymore. He had to go to Concordia River Forest. And he wrote a letter to that girl, Vicky, and said, it was really nice being with you and... and and I'm not going to be back, and good luck to you, and all that stuff. She wrote him back, and she said to that young man, My greatest regret is that I never got a second date with you. I will regret forever that I did not get to know you better. And that young man, 50 years later, still thinks of that. He asked God to open the door. God opened the door. And he said, I'm not going to go through that door. You pray to God about a relationship. Should I leave? Should I stay? Give me a sign. He gives you signs. You do the opposite. He says, get away from this guy. You're not a good mix. And you sit there saying to God, 
Well, here's the reasons I think we are. So I'm going to keep praying until you change your mind. Or God says, stick with this individual. You, you know it. You have that feeling. And then you come up with all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't. It's called unfaith. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I'll come in. But here's the deal. It's you and me who have got to come in when he opens some door. I head to the woman in the village. Never seen Jesus in her life. 85 pounds, dead broke. Friends saying, you're a fool. You're going to get killed in the marketplace. She goes, touches his robe, and she's healed. As amazed as he was at his disciples' lack of faith a day earlier, he's even more amazed at this woman's faith. And when he says, your faith has made you whole, he means entirely whole. Entirely. Because if you have a disease like hers, Even if you stop bleeding, you sit and wonder every time you get up from a chair whether there's going to be blood. You wonder when it's going to come back. You just assume it's going to come back. Or if you have a disease like hers, you're saying, I had $100,000 and now I have zero because over these 12 years I've lost everything. And you're filled with anger and despair. When Jesus said to her, your faith has made you whole, he meant from head to foot. He meant body, mind, soul, and spirit. He meant everything. You have brought your stories this morning. Whatever is not good, you leave it in the pew. And you take out of this building... The promises that God gives you. One day at a time. One circumstance at a time. Not saying to God, I'm going drowned. But saying to God, I know you're with me. What strength that gives me. Would you rise as we pray? Book of Hebrews, 2,000 years ago, God's people shall gather, shall gather, shall gather. They'll gather in 1,000 A.D. They'll gather in 1,500 A.D. They'll gather during the Civil War. They'll gather a couple of days after a great tragedy at Table Rock Lake in Branson, Missouri. They will gather after a great tragedy in the parking lot of a church at 6850 West 159th Street, they will gather, they will gather, they will gather. And whenever they gather, be it in a church or a small group or in a private reading of God's Word, when they gather, I will enter their life story. And I will beg them once again to the working of the Holy Spirit to believe, to believe, to believe that I am with them. As the great Habakkuk said, In his small book of the Old Testament, 
If the olive crop fails, I'll rejoice in my God. If the grapevines wither, I'll rejoice in my God. If there are no grains in the field at harvest time, I will find joy in God my Savior. If there are no sheep in the pen or cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in God my Savior. For he will make my feet as swift as a deer, and he will give me the strength to climb mountains. Grant us that faith, Lord, in our Savior's name. Amen.